KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. The podcast has been on a holiday break, but I'm back, and the 88th Annual Academy Award nominations were just released, so Oscar is on everyone's mind. So my show today is going to be all about the Oscars. I have to confess, I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the Oscars. I used to use the list of Oscar-winning films as a list to go off of as to what films I should try to go see. But as I saw more and more movies, I used to get frustrated with what films won and what films were left off of the nominations. When I was a senior in high school, I actually got to go to the Academy Awards. Granted, I was sitting in the last seat in the last row in the highest rafter at the theater, but I did get to go. And it was the year that Star Wars was nominated. Star Wars, a 20th Century Fox production, 20th Century Fox, Gary Kurtz, producer. And the winner is Annie Hall, Charles H. Joplin. That was an important moment for me. That was when I started to question the Academy Awards and began this love-hate relationship with them and feeling that the films I liked were getting overlooked. It was also difficult for me to like Woody Allen for a number of years after that. So today, it's a three-part show all about the Oscars. First, I'm going to talk to an Oscar nominee from one of the craft categories, then to a blogger who's doing 31 days of Oscar for a blogathon, and then I'll repeat the midday conversation I had with a fellow film critic. For achievement in sound mixing, the nominees are Bridge of Spies, Mad Max Fury Road, The Martian, The Revenant, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. That was the live feed of the Oscar nominations being read on Thursday morning. So my first guest is Frank Montano, a re-recording mixer who just got nominated for sound mixing for The Revenant. First off, I wanted to start the conversation by talking about one of the most memorable scenes in The Revenant, which is the bear attack. Can you talk a little bit specifically about dealing with those challenges? A lot of the credit goes to a gentleman who is phenomenally talented, and he joined our, our mixed team uh, to help us out and actually did the sound design on the bear with Randy Tom. And he had worked on that scene in, believe it or not, I believe it was April. Visually, it was in the infancy stage. It wasn't very far along. So those tracks came in, and we made very little changes to them. Uh, but Alejandro wanted to make sure that it wasn't big for the sake of being really big, and it wasn't to the point where it was unreal. So we really kind of manipulated the tracks to a small degree to make sure that you know, the footsteps were a little more muddy than a little more thuddy kind of thing. Too much, you know, processing. That the, that the vocals of the bear weren't so loud that we lost Leo in the scene.
<laughs> the what we will call the you know the gore of the bear biting and you know and clawing Leo during that scene wasn't so over the top that you stopped believing. And that, believe it or not, what sets that scene apart was that the nature cared less about what was happening. In the quiet moments of the scene, because there's three phases to the attack, I think. And in between them, you're still you're hearing bugs, you're hearing flies, you're hearing birds off stage, you're hearing tree wind, you're hearing the cubs going on, and that would really based it in reality. So when we were able to keep the whole film in that pocket, it really had an impact that you believed it was happening, and that is the magic of sound. Well, actually, I was going to ask you about the silences, which aren't complete silence, but the quiet moments, because I think that was part of what made that scene effective and kind of grueling to go through is you have this intense moment and then this little bit of quiet. And I think your ears are really pricked up at that point because you're listening like, where did it go? <laughs> How far away is he or she? That's when we talk about dynamic range. That's exactly, that's a perfect example of that phrase is how loud is your loud and how low is your lows. You have a moment of hyper-reality, and then shortly thereafter, that, like you say, it didn't go silent, it just stayed real. It just stayed as it was before. And the storytelling part is nature doesn't care that there is this brutality happening. The birds are still going to be the birds, and the wind and trees are still going to be the wind and trees. The Oscar nominations just came out, and I know that a lot of times I get people asking me, well, what's the difference between the sound mixing and the sound editing awards? And this particularly comes up whenever I'm in an Oscar pool and people are trying to mark their ballots, and they're like, I don't understand what the difference is. So can you enlighten us on what that is? Yeah, it confuses me as well. No, I'm just kidding. From the outside looking, they're very close as far as understanding what each discipline brings to the table, but they are married. The sound editing is the editing of sounds to match the picture. So that has a, there's a traditional protocol to that discipline and it's a spotting session. So the filmmakers will sit with sound editorial and look at the movie. Sometimes those sounds are described in the script there was a cold wind blowing through the scene that made everyone feel very uncomfortable. Sometimes that sound request comes from the director and or the picture editor, or it is brought to the table by the sound editorial team. So it's a spotting session and take sound notes. Some of it's self-explanatory, and some of the work is what we'll say that's not off the rack, that we actually, sound editorial way, they have to record in a live recording and or manipulate audio, hence sound design. So there's no dinosaurs available to record, right? So that's going to have to be audio that's been manipulated to have a dinosaur vocal, if you will, for example. They play these, this material for the filmmaker and get a lot of feedback during this process so that the filmmaker can say, 
can there be more weight to it? Can there be a little more sharpness to it? It should have a narrative, you know, maybe if it's a, it's a key character in the film, let it be like a robot of some sort, then that is going to be a visual effect that's coming in. And with that visual effect to make it come to life, there needs to be sound edited to actually give that specific sound edited to give that thing, that being, that visual effect, a character. So that is kind of overall, in a, you know, quick synopsis of what sound editorial is. Now there's also within that uh, paradigm, there's going to be then there's going to be a Foley component. Now, Foley is going to be a very specific and unique to every film process of what I like to call action and reaction. So what Foley is going to do is going to cover every footstep and every movement by our principal characters to cover what's not covered in the production recording. Because we have to remember the production recording, primarily what we're going to get from the production recording on set is going to be the principal actor's dialogue only. And then there's going to be live recordings for very specific films, fresh recordings of maybe, you know, jets and or cars and or, you know, atmospheres. So all that has to be gathered over, you know, anywhere from months to a year of building a library of sounds that are specific for that particular film. So once all that material has been recorded and edited, it's brought to a mixing stage. So now we're getting into the mixing process, right? So now we are starting to blend production and post-production recordings together. So I'm going to take all these sounds that have been provided to me, put them on a, a large console, sit inside a theater, a mixing stage, and watch picture on a large screen, so we're going to take all these sounds and start to, again, make them cohesive. So they come from all these different sources through sound editing and have come to, be, come to the stage, and now they're starting to be mixed and blended so that we put it in a 5-1 environment or a 7-1 environment or an Atmos environment or an IMAX environment, all various sound formats and picture formats. So I'm going to take all these sounds and start to build the atmospheres, the location changes, how the depth of field during the mix is, does that sound far away? Does it sound close up? And start methodically going through the movie as we start to mix, start to make the audience feel like you're in the scene. Because remember, all we get from production is principal dialogue from our actor. So when we get our original composition from the composer, that will also that that's also going to be split out in groups so that we have orchestra provided separate from maybe strings, separate from horns, separate from percussion, so that when we start to shape the movie, shape each reel, that everything can be manipulated. After the prep is done, which we call pre-mixing, and the prep has been complete, and we're ready to sit with our filmmakers and start to assemble the movie, we go reel by reel, so it could be, for instance, The Revenant was eight reels. It was two hours and 37 minutes, and um, we are going to take a reel at a time. Now, we try to budget each reel for about two days on average. 
so we start to blend this mix and really shape the way that it has some kind of emotional impact on the audience and conveying story. So sound is all about story. So sound edit is going to be the art of collecting and creating sounds, and sound mix is taking the dialogue, the music, and the sound effects and blending them into whatever focus and however the filmmaker would like to feel for those scenes to those reels all the way through the process. As we were making our way through the film reel by reel, fixing reel by reel, eventually at the end of that, that, that time, we're going to string the movie as a whole piece from start to finish and look at it one more time. And what we want to look, look at it, why we want to look at it at that point, is to really get a sense of what's working thematically. What is our dynamic range? Are we too loud for too long? Um, do we lose focus somewhere? Do we not follow the story? We're not really conveying the story sound-wise, so we have to fix those things. Is there too much music during this mix? Do we, are we overshadowing the actor's performance? Are we not clear on some of the, you know, are we not clear enough on dialogue? So sound edit is gathering, creating, and organizing sounds. And sound mixing is the blending and the storytelling component. Of, of, the, of the soundtrack. So sometimes you'll see the same films nominated in both categories, and sometimes the nominations are, you know, different. So I'm curious, are there types of films or particular skills that tend to get noticed more in one of those categories or another? Like, is a, an, a highly effects-driven film more likely to get the sound editing nomination than the mixing one? And are... Like, quiet dramas tend to be overlooked in both categories in favor of something flashier? Right. Good question. There, there's no real predictability exactly. If you look at it, as we just discussed, the difference between the two disciplines is if it's a musical-based movie, like a traditional musical, you know, that may not, a musical may not get recognized for sound editorial because it's all really music-based where, let's say, a heavy effect show, because it's unique and it's so vital to the story, you might see the sound editing award and not sound mixing. The nominations are actually brought out by each branch so that the sound branch votes for their own. So it's the sound branch is made up of re-recording mixers and sound editors. So it's always a little bit of a tricky thing. Some of the dialogue pictures are just brilliantly done but in a subtle way. And sometimes they do get recognized for that. And sometimes some of the bigger, bolder pictures, sound-wise, are not unique enough for that given year to be recognized. So it's always a little bit of a, a crapshoot, if you will. But we normally get them right. <laughs> so how did you get into doing sound work? Because it's not, no offense or anything, but it's not the more glamorous of the positions on a film, yet it's entirely vital to it. So I'm just curious, how did you end up getting into this field? Well, it's, it's kind of uh, like following the, uh, you're behind the elephant with a dustpan <laughs> in the circus, actually. <laughs> I have a t-shirt that reads, I'm the sound guy, nobody knows who I am until I'm not doing my job right. 
No, it, it as actually is very fulfilling. I always describe it as it's a 50-50 proposition when you sit down and watch a film, right? So the stimuli is 50% pictorial, picture-driven, and the other 50% is the sonic environment. Uh, I like to argue, actually, that it's 51% to sound, since we can uh, close our, close your eyes and take you to the Congo or take you to the ocean or take you to a stadium or take you to wherever in the world, even, even a, a make-believe place. Um, you know, I personally, my, my journey, uh, started working on sound equipment at, uh, 18 years old and then uh, went from building equipment to maintaining mixing consoles to installing them to actually working in a studio environment and just kind of stumbled and bumbled my way into actually sound mixing. Now there's specific schools that provided, uh, film schools inside some of the larger universities provide that part of the uh, film classes. Even if you don't go into that field, if you want to direct or produce and write, it, it's always great to have uh, sound recognized. So exposure at an early age uh, during the process really helps us as we move forward to you know working with some of these younger or newer filmmakers, that they appreciate sound, that they understand how vital it is. And, and for the most part, that most filmmakers do really count on it being part of their storytelling. So it's really getting a lot of uh, respect inside the community. You're still a little underappreciated, though, I think. <laughs> right. Well, we'll be under, I'd rather be underappreciated and overpaid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the kind of thing, too, where part of what you're striving for is to not be noticed because if people are sitting in the theater and going like I'm noticing the sound work in this film it's probably not the effect you want that is the art of the mixing is to not ever get in the way i think you know my mantra is not to mess it up right so we never really want to be noticed for the wrong reasons we want to be noticed for, you know, those key cliche phrases, uh, you know, dynamic or, or transparent. You know, we never want the audience to watch a movie. We always want the audience to be in the movie. And that has a lot to do with the, the sonic quality uh, of the film and in the environments that we're trying and the storytelling. So we always want to make sure that you're not leaning over asking, what do they say? We want to make sure that the demographic is, you know, the film is built for the demographics, not too loud, not too abrasive for one audience, but it's kind of muscle for another audience, and it's gentle for yet another audience. So I look back over my career and the films that I've worked on, and, and always uh, there's something in there that you wish you could have done different, you know? In looking back on some of your films, what are uh, a couple of the films that you're most proud of? Oh, geez. You know, they're they're like your children. You never want to pick one out. They're always, I think for me, it's really on the, the filmmakers that we're working with is really important. And they're all different, which is great. Uh, but some of the things that stick out, I did a film, a uh, Stephen Scott film called Under Siege. Uh, it was my first nomination, so that's always special. We did A Beautiful Mind in New York, September of 2001. So... At the end of September 2001, so that was a very interesting time uh, to be in New York, obviously, with the devastation uh, in New York at the time with the tower, the attack on the towers, being in the city from Los Angeles and being in the city there and working on Beautiful Mind, which ended up with uh, a Best Picture award. 
an Oscar that year, so that was always a standout. But they all have a little special something to them, and The Revenant is actually it's one it's a once in a lifetime film that we all dream about. Sound people, you know, dream about working on, and we and we were able to do that this year. So that that one is a, a benchmark in filmmaking, in my opinion. So it'll be. Uh, Seen by generations to come. And what sound nomination did you receive for that? Uh, sound mixing uh, for The Revenant this year. Last year was we, uh, my mixing partner John Taylor and I uh, received a double nomination last year, which was for, for Unbroken and Birdman, which was very interesting because they're they're polar opposite, you know, in their audio track. But they're so different. One is a more polished and Again, another cliche, a Hollywood sound versus a, you know, Birdman being an extremely immersive mm-hmm. and real kind of raw sound. So very proud to be able to do, um, in the same given year, do movies that are so sonically different. On The Revenant, what would you say was the biggest challenge? Um, the biggest challenge for us as a crew was to keep it very real for sounding so that it never overpowered the picture when it wasn't needed to, it always felt like, again, that key phrase is that you were with the character, not watching the character. It, it could be very dynamic. It could, at any moment, it, it was uh, visceral. At times, it was, you know, very, very, very intimate at times, and it ran the gamut. So it was just to keep it real that you always felt just that you were there with whoever was on screen. For you personally, looking at films being made today, can you point to any examples of films where you really think they were driving kind of the creativity in sound work in ways that you thought were interesting or hopeful for the future? Absolutely. That's a really unique perspective to have is when you sit down and you do it for a living and you're watching a film and you actually forget about what you do is really, really impressive. Something very subtle this year, like Bridge of Spies, it just has a really great sound to it. It That is really, a, you know, we're talking about, that's really a dialogue-driven movie. Didn't get, I don't believe it got editorial nomination, but it got a mixing nomination, and rightfully so. It is a really interesting-sounding movie that just, really lent itself to that film. It just really connected. There's just so many talented people coming through the ranks that, you know, it is very exciting. And, you know, it takes people like myself and uh, Randy Tom and, uh, you know, Gary Reitstroms and, uh, you know, Paul Massey, who did, you know, The Martian and people like that to hand down what we've learned to make sure that the art continues to go forward and progress and earn the respect that it deserves. And the only way to do that is to mentor and share stories and share experiences with some of these super talented people coming through the ranks. And what do you have coming up in the future? Uh, we are actually working, believe it or not, we're working on uh, The Huntsman, which is a prequel to Snow White and The Huntsman. And uh, we're based out uh, here at uh, Universal Studios, which has been my home for 15 years. And then uh, shortly thereafter, we're going to go on to the next installment of Star Trek. So it's really kind of cool. We go from uh, medieval fantasy to futuristic fantasy. Now, from a sound perspective, what do you think is 
harder or more challenging? Is it these fantasy worlds where people don't really maybe have a sense of like, I don't know what a starship would sound like when it's just kind of sitting humming in the port or whatever? Or is it the real world kind of films, the, you know, subtler dramas? Like, which of those do you find kind of more difficult or challenging to do just in a, in a general sense? Uh, I'll give you the politically correct answer, which is they're both difficult, and here's the reasons why. The more subtle the track is, it's there's less to hide behind. So all your blemishes show. <laughs> when you're doing an action picture, and the, some of those scenes are heavily being driven by you know music and or effects, is a little more of a broad-based feel to them, so that you're you know not every detail is being analyzed only. 90% of them are. Most people think the quieter, the real is simpler versus the over, overly aggressive soundtracks. But actually, they're both about 50-50. Just one's a little more fatiguing to the ear than the other. Do you remember when you were going, when you were young and going to movies, do you ever remember like the first film where you kind of noticed sound work? Was there a point where you said like, there's somebody there doing that and that's kind of interesting? Yeah, I, I can tell you exactly when that happened. Um, for me, was the film called Torah, Torah, Torah at the Chinese. At the, that time, was the Groman Chinese in Hollywood. The incredible attack on Pearl Harbor, as told from both the United States and Japanese side. Torah, Torah, Torah! The Pearl Harbor attack, etc really affected me. I mean, I really felt like you were there. So sonically, it kind of had an effect on me. I couldn't articulate what that was at that point in time. I was very young. And then the second time it happened to me was on Apocalypse Now, a night attack on the river with uh, an RPG flying through the theater and flying over my head. Actually, I had a physical reaction of ducking. Visually, it was coming at me, and sonically, it went by me, and there was a physical reaction. And But it didn't stimulate anything where it was like, I want to do that, but those things are embedded in my memory, at least till dementia sets in. And then when I got into the, started to dabble in sound around 18 years old, and then it, by the grace of the audio gods, kind of led me to the sound end of things. And then I, I realized from a layman's perspective, even as an engineer, that that was going to be a very, that's a very interesting craft and a very impactful, important component to let it be music or film. And then at a very early age, I was, was exposed to it about 20 and started mixing at 21. So 30 years later and 150 pictures later, I'm having a conversation with you. Sound is so important. We live by the motto of we never really finish. We just run out of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time at the last minute like this. And um, best of luck to you at the awards. Well, you know what? Thank you so much for having me. And, and it's extremely important for people like, you know, to have people like you that understand the importance of it and, and get the message out there. It can only help. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. 
Now I'm going to talk to somebody who can give you a little sense of Oscar's past. So my second guest is Once Upon a Screen blogger Aurora Bagayo, known to her Twitter followers as Citizen Screen. Four years ago, she came up with something she calls 31 Days of Oscar Blogathon. So welcome, Aurora. How are you doing? I'm good, Beth. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Well, Oscar, it's Oscar fever time. People are dreaming about the little gold statue right now. So tell me, how did you come up with this idea for this 31 Days of Oscar Blogathon? What inspired you to do that? Um, well, first, I want to mention it's not, it wasn't my idea alone. It's a team effort. Um, I co-host the event with Kelly Pratt from Outspoken and Freckled and Paula Guffitt from Paula's Cinema Club. So together we came up with the idea inspired by uh, TCM's 31 Days of Oscars programming. They're doing um, the 31 Days as they've done for the last 21 years, you know, starting on February 1st, where they feature Oscar-nominated films and winners, of course, uh, throughout all of February. So what does this blogathon entail? Does somebody have to be a blogger to partake in it? Can you just hop in at any time? What what exactly does yeah, happen? Yeah, I mean, most of the people that, that participate are bloggers. They have their own blogs. But we do once in a while have someone that we may have met through on social media that is a classic film lover. Actually, we, we accept, you know, our current nominations as well. And they may reach out to one of us and say, listen, I'd love to write something. And We'll post it on our blog. What we're doing is throughout the month of February for the four weekends, February 6th, February 13th, February 20th, and February 27th, we've designated a different topic for each of the weekends. We have the actors for um, the first week, Oscar Snubs, which is always very popular on the second week, the crafts, which includes, of course, costumes, cinematography, writing, etc., on the third week, and then we do the motion pictures and the directors for the fourth week. But uh, pretty much anyone who loves film or is passionate about one of the topics, an actor or film, can participate. And usually how many bloggers do you get partaking in this? Um, well, you know, it's a fairly popular blogathon, especially since it's throughout the month. I think last year we got between 75 and 80 entries. So, yeah, it was it was great. It was great participation. I think it's been the same for the previous three years, actually. And do you guys also have a Twitter component to this? Are you watching the films on TCM and also doing tweet-alongs with that? Uh, well, we do tweet along with TCM Party. That we do constantly. Not Not, you know, each of us every day. But we will be watching the films throughout the month as well. And uh, some of the entries match it up to the TCM schedule. And, of course, we link back to TCM and mention their festival throughout each of our posts because that they were the inspiration for this. You mentioned one of the themes is going to be snubs, yeah. which is a great one. And... The Oscar nominations for this year just came out, and I know that there are going to be a few people out there stinging from being overlooked. Since the Oscar nominations this year seem to be very white and male for the most part in terms of the films, I know that yeah. people were upset that pe that actors like Idris Elba were overlooked for Beast of No Nation and yeah. um, Michael B. Jordan from Creed. What are some of the snubs that really stick out in your mind from like some of the golden years of the Oscars? Oh, my God. Where to start? You know, I mean, the, the one that's, that's always topped my list is Judy Garland for A Star is Born. You know, no disrespect to Grace Kelly, but uh, Judy, that was Judy's statuette, and just it was given to the wrong person. Um, there are a lot of acting snubs that we can talk about. Um, I think that um, 
for instance, Edward G. Robinson, and he's on my mind because TCN just played uh, Double Indemnity last night. I think he deserved the Best Supporting Actor for that over Barry Fitzgerald, who won. There are many, many classic movies that, that weren't even nominated. City Lights, which is one of the great films of all time. Frankenstein was never nominated. A lot of those universal horror films were severely overlooked. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I think what I'm, what I'm going to work on for this year's blogathon in the snubs category is Oscar's lack of relationship with horror. Because <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's, I don't even get it. It's just, you know, impossible to understand. The Night of the Hunter was never nominated. One of the greatest films mm-hmm. ever made, in my opinion. Well, I remember how excited I was when Silence of the Lambs swept that year. And I was going, "It was, a horror film has swept the Oscars. <laughs> this is a first. That was the first one that won an Academy Award for Best Picture, the first horror. I love that movie. And, uh, and I think it's, it, I mean, it was just rightfully chosen. The, the performances are... We, we have the conversation about what's, what's classic, what's not classic. Well, that's a perfect example to me that it's a, a, you know, a modern film that is a classic for me. I mean, it's just perfection, those performances. But I don't know that I was surprised to see. I was extremely happy. And I think The Exorcist was the first one nominated for Best Picture. That's amazing when you think about it. Yeah, exactly. When you think about the horror films through the ages, mm-hmm. since, the begin- since the beginning of film, and, and I don't understand it. Well, in this year, it seems like Oscar is slowly warming up to genre films. And this year, I was really surprised to see that Mad Max Fury Road got a Best Picture and Best Director nomination. So maybe they're, maybe they're warming up to those genre films. It could be. I mean, which is great. I think that populist deserves uh, recognition as well. The, those genre films are usually very popular, so good for them. They're sort of becoming human in that sense. When I was a kid, I grew up with those Robert Osborne Academy Award annuals, and I would pour over these books and collections of, you know, the Oscar lists and use it as my checklist of what films to go see. And... You know, I was my goal was to see every single film that was up for Best Picture. And then as I saw more and more films as I got older, I started to get a little disillusioned with the Oscars. How did you kind of like first start watching the Oscars and was it something that you always looked forward to? And and how do you has that feeling about them changed over the years? Hmm. Um, well, I, you know, I started watching, I fell in love with movies when I started watching them. I got to this country when I was five years old, and they used to play on television all the time. I grew up in the New York City area. Uh, we had the 430 movie. We had TBS playing them. So I fell in love with those classic movies. I started buying the Hollywood magazines, Rona Barrett magazine back then. And, of course, they had the Oscar special. We had this really old rinky-dink little theater. I would try certainly to go see all the movies that were nominated every year. It was an excitement. There was a glitz and glamour about it still back then. I used to even play um, Oscars with my cousins. That, that, that was one of our games. So what we would do is in each category, we'd simply choose whatever movies we liked. I mean, my best picture could have been On the Town, Penny Serenade, Meet Me in St. Louis. And then I just, the winner was the one that I liked the most. My cousins would pick their favorite songs and stuff. So, I mean, this has been an excitement all of my life. I've been excited about it. Has it changed? Yes, it's changed. It's not, it doesn't represent that 
sort of, you know, glitz and glamour anymore. The actors or the stars are not removed from us like they used to seem to be. You know, these were people that, that I was in awe of that doesn't exist anymore. But I do still like to go see the movies. I like to give my opinion. I usually do print a ballot and end up watching the Oscars with friends and see if I can guess who, you know, who they're going to pick. So there is a certain excitement to them for me still, but it's not the same in any way as it, as it used to be. So one of the weeks you're dedicating to the crafts. So do you think this is to help people understand what some of these craft categories are all about? One of my favorite things about blogathons, um, it's community building. It's, you know, you meet people, even if it's online, that love these films as much as you do, et cetera. But you always learn something. You know, cinematographers is something. I love cinematography in film, but I don't necessarily know a lot about the famous uh, cinematographers. And you, we always get comments at the end of, of the event saying that people do learn about these films. We, you know, increase uh, curiosity in certain players or films because of these topics and the passion that people put in their writing. So it's really a side benefit of doing this. You know, we get people in their 20s, people in in their 60s, 70s that have been writing about film forever. So it, it expands everybody's knowledge about these topics. And we started doing the topic with the craft last year. And we had such a great turnout. Of course, we repeated it. You know, it's just so much fun. Uh, the topics that are chosen already, we have somebody's going to write about the screenplay for Little Miss Sunshine. Somebody's writing about the cinematography and Black Narcissus. Somebody's writing about Bernard Herman. So, you know, it really spans the ages. It's, it spans all the topics. It's really a lot of fun. Now, you mentioned the TCM party. Can you explain for people what that is? Um, sure. Um, it just so happens that uh, one of my co-hosts on in for the blogathon is the the founder, one of the founders of TCM Party, and basically it's a hashtag hashtag TCM Party, and we watch movies on TCM and tweet along with them. Started four or five years ago, and she's going to probably kill me for not remembering exactly, but. And it's grown now. It's um, going 24 hours a day. People are on there. Whenever people are watching, uh, people in this group are watching uh, TCM movies, they're tweeting along to it. And it's really a lot of fun. You get people from, again, you get bloggers, just regular fans that are on, on Twitter. And uh, you get, you know, some trivia, a lot of, of snarky remarks, but they're fun. It's really a lot of fun. And like I said, you can go on, uh, you can search TCM Party hashtag anytime during the day and uh, somebody's on there commenting on these films. Well, and it's an interesting community that that creates because you've got people who are all around the country and sometimes even out of the country watching yeah. films at the same time as if you're all in this big living room together. Yeah, it's really made a difference for a lot of people. I mean, not everyone has family members or friends that like these old movies. You know, most of the people I know think I'm nuts that I would go to a festival to watch movies for, for an entire day, much less a weekend. But you go on there, and it's almost like by now we're all old friends. A lot of us have met at the, at the TCM Festival. Some of us keep in touch and see each other outside, um, you know, and during regular intervals watching movies locally. So, you know, it's really made a difference. It's built this community. We we were all shocked when we met the first time um, at the festival that 
these are actual real friendships that have that have formed just from tweeting along to these movies. So it's really quite remarkable. Well, I was lucky enough to get to go to the TCM Film Festival and meet some of you guys there. And it seems like it's people who meet and you feel like you've known each other for a long time because you have all these films in common and all these kind of film experiences in common. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, they're very valuable uh, friendships because for whether it's for those three or four days or whether it lasts throughout the years uh, uh, by way of uh, Twitter or, like I said, some, sometimes you go see movies with these people now. Um, these are, in many cases, the only relationships you have where you can actually go have a drink or go have something to eat and talk about old movies for four or five hours. <laughs> and you can't do that with everybody because they, you know, they'll look at you like you're crazy. Now, what part do you think TCM has played in helping foster this community? Um, well, a huge. They're the reason why we started doing this in the first place. I mean, if we didn't have the the um, link of the movie that airs on TCM that we're all able to watch at the same time, this never would have happened. There are many, many other groups that, that have formed that have... Um, regular tweet along, you know, but in a lot of cases, they either all watch something on YouTube together or something like that. Well, this is already scheduled for us. This is simply turning on your TV and watching what's airing on TCM. And it's just become, in, in the case of many, many people, part of the daily routine. I have TCM on most of the time, whether I'm actively watching or simply doing things around the house and uh, I have it, you know, for background noise. But I know that if it's a movie that I know and I hear a phrase that, I, that I'm familiar with or it's a scene that I love, I tend to grab my phone and I'll tweet something to TCM Party. <laughs> you know, it's a really, it's an odd thing when you come to think about it. So are you looking forward to the films coming up in February? Um, I am. They're actually, TCM is doing something quite unique. It, it should be very interesting. They're going to be airing movies in a schedule based loosely on the six degrees of separation or six degrees of Kevin Bacon, whichever way you want to look at it. So that each movie will have something, some kind of connection to the previous one or to the one that follows. You know, it'll be interesting. I, I looked at the schedule very briefly the other day. A, a lot of the movies obviously are familiar. These are not, you know, new releases. Um, but, but it, you know, I, I like that theme. Last year, I believe that they did it uh, strictly sequential from the first, you know, they did Wings, the first Academy Award winner, through, I believe, like Lord of the Rings they even did. But um, I think, you know, I really like this, this topic or the way they're presenting it this year. It should be interesting. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for speaking with me. Is there a place where people can go to get more information on the 31 Days of Oscar Blogathon or where these blogs are collected or any other information they can get? Yeah, sure. Well, my blog is Once Upon a Screen. The URL is aurorasginjoint.com. You can also go to either Outspoken and Freckled or Paula's Cinema Club. All three of us will be posting the uh, entries as they come in, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, be, you know, we'll have a lot of really fun, fun stuff to celebrate during the month of February. So it'll be fun, you know, looking, really looking forward to it. All right, sounds great. Thank you very much for your time. All right, thank you for inviting me to be on. It was fun. 
And finally, here's the midday segment that fellow film critic and podcaster Yazdi Pidvala and I did with Maureen Cavanaugh the day the Oscar nominations were announced. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. It helped to get mauled by a bear and fight dystopian dictators in Hollywood this year. The movies The Revenant and Mad Max Fury Road were two of the biggest picks at the 88th Annual Academy Award nominations that were announced this morning. Joining me to discuss the nominations as well as what the Academy got right and what they may have overlooked are... KPBS film critic Beth Accomando. Beth, welcome. Thank you. And Movie Wallace podcaster Yazdi Patavala. Welcome, Yazdi. Thank you. Now, Beth, you were up early this morning to hear the nominees announced. (laughs) Can you give us a quick rundown on the numbers? Sure. We have at the top of the list is The Revenant, which got 12, followed closely by Mad Max with 10. And then you have a pair of films, Spotlight and Carol with six apiece. And then Star Wars, Bridge of Spies, and The Big Short all came in with five. Uh And any, any of the best pictures just got one? Or uh, maybe Room, Brooklyn, something like that? There are a few that got just a couple of nominations. There's a few solitary souls out there, <laughs> especially, I think, in the acting categories. It was an, an odd collection of nominations in a certain way because they all felt kind of safe um, and very predictable. I mean, I actually, you know, if you read some of the, the people making the predictions, most of them were pretty spot on. So there weren't huge surprises in that list. So uh, round it out for us, if you would. Uh, we heard that you just gave us a list of all mm-hmm. the best pictures, the best actor and best actress, just so people know what sure, we're talking about. Yes. We've got for best actor, Brian Cranston in Trumbo, Matt Damon in The Martian, and Matt Damon just won the comedy, comedy acting award for from Golden Crazy, Globes. right? Yeah. yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio for The Revenant. He came away with the Best Drama, um, Best Actor Award from the Golden Globes. Michael Fassbender in Steve Jobs and Eddie Redmayne in The Danish Girl. And then for Best Actress, we have Kate Blanchett in Carol, Brie Larson in The Room, not The Room, in just Room, <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence in Joy, Charlotte Rampling in 45 Years, and Saoirse Ronan in Brooklyn. So those are, and a lot of, some of those are fairly lonely categories for some of those films. Which, when the nominations were announced, which nominations seemed to generate the biggest reaction, Beth? The biggest reaction came in the Best Supporting Actor category, so let's hear them read the nominees and see what gets the applause. For performance by an actor in a supporting role, the nominees are Christian Bale in The Big Short, Tom Hardy in The Revenant, Mark Ruffalo in Spotlight, Mark Rylance in Bridge of Spies, and Sylvester Stallone in Creed. <laughs> Rocky! Rocky! <laughs> now, Yasti, one complaint that's being raised is that these nominations lacked diversity. Were the major nomina- nominees all white? Yes, they were. If uh-huh. you look at uh, all of the acting categories, best actor, best actress, best supporting actor, best supporting actress, they're all white. So what potentially Oscar-worthy nominations by minority actors do you think might have been overlooked? Yeah, we were just talking about this. Uh, Michael B. Jordan in Creed uh, did a tremendous job. Uh, He would have been uh, a very good pick. Uh, He was Creed, right? Yes. 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 (laughs) It was the title role. Yeah. Uh, In general, I think, uh, you know, last year, uh, Ava DuVernay was not nominated for Best Director when a lot of people thought she would uh, for Selma. And so there was a 
a lot of ink spent on on that issue. And I thought that somehow the voters would correct it this year. And yet here we are with the same situation. Right. So it's a little little upsetting. Anything that you think were, was particularly overlooked, Beth? Yeah, in terms of Minorities, the fact that yeah. yeah, the fact that Sylvester Stallone got the only nomination for Creed is kind of upsetting uh, because I think Ryan Coogler came up with the perfect sequel franchise film. It perfectly blended the indie film, which he's known for, he did Fruitvale Station, with the big Hollywood franchise. And he did such a, a remarkable job. I thought he would sneak in there for Best Director, or at least Creed might sneak in for the Best um, Picture category. And then the other big uh, performance that was overlooked is Idris Elba from uh, Beast of, Beast no, of Nation. no Nation. Yeah, yeah. And I thought with all the controversy about him being too urban, no, too street to play Bond, that maybe they'd go like, oh, you know, let's look at here and here and, and give him some props. But no. And uh, Yazdi, was there any place where women and African Americans did get attention? Um, so I think. Uh, in general, this year, the uh, female lead character was the, by far the most competitive one. This was the one where easily I can come up with 15 names of... A, really? A, yeah, female... The female really strong actress. Very strong yeah. actress. Not so much uh, for the male acting category, but for the female acting category, it has been particularly strong and heavily contested. And there were uh, so there was a, a writing nod to yeah women in all of all the categories. I think the place where they stood out the most in in terms of positions of power too on a film was in writing. I think there were three women who grabbed writing nominations. But we were just looking at um, straight out of Compton grabbed a nomination for writing. Yeah. But I believe all four of the act the writers may have been white. I'm oh. not positive, so. <laughs> But at least it was a film that focused on African-American characters, but apparently... Reverse it, diversity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Revenant had the most nominations, as you told us, Beth, including acting nominations for Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy. Let's hear a scene between the two of them. It takes place after DiCaprio's character has been attacked by that bear. That bear. And Hardy's <laughs> character thinks he should stop fighting death. What you holding to, Glad? You know, it would be better if you were to take that last breath of yours now for all of us. You hung tough. That's something. I'm begging you, class. Them Reed, they're so close now I can smell them. I know you can smell them too and you got to think. You got to think of your boy. Now, Yasti, you liked this film and are happy to see it nominated, not unlike Beth here. So, so why? Um, it's voodoo. I think what resonates for you uh, is voodoo. You know, it, when a movie turns something within your emotional circuitry, I mean, I very consciously uh, felt myself above my seat when I was watching it. I had an out-of-body experience, and I live for that, right? That doesn't happen. Yeah. We are all so jaded and cynical, and we are everything seems so mediocre. And when something kind of pulls you out of your seat, that's uh, pretty remarkable. I think it's a combination of um, how majestic the movie is. Uh, the craft is impeccable. I mean, these are long, long shots. There's a fabulous uh, little piece in the middle of the movie, uh, which is an unbroken uh, take involving several actors, a lot of action going on. 
that coupled with a story which is very, very elemental. I mean, the story could not be simpler. This right. particular director has always made very complicated, complex stories. And here he finally lets go of that and makes a very simple survival story. So it, it all worked for me. Now, Beth, you say that uh, the type of role <laughs> DiCaprio had in, this, in The Revenant is, is uh, an example of Oscar baiting. Tell us, what, yeah. what is that? <laughs> I, I mean, for me, I, I really enjoyed the film. It was mainly Leonardo DiCaprio's performance that kept pulling me out of the movie. And to me, Oscar-baiting performances are those ones where it's the look at me, I'm acting with a capital A. And look, I ate a raw bison liver. That's acting. I, you know, I was inside a carcass of an animal. And I, I'm a handsome guy and I let myself get dirty and have bad teeth. And that's acting. And to me, that was a lot of superficial aspects of the performance. And I think what made it even worse is that he was up against Tom Hardy, who was almost the polar opposite. He was so subtle and naturalistic and absolutely believable. I don't think I don't think it was till the end of the film that it struck me that it was Tom Hardy playing the part. Wow. Uh, let me move on, move on, move on to, uh, you both said this was a strong year for actresses, but, mm -hmm. and, and, but one actress in a, in a nominated picture, the Mad Max picture, did not uh, get a nomination herself, Charlize Theron. Let's hear a scene with her. How do you know this place even exists? I was born there. So why'd you leave? I didn't. I was taken as a child, stolen. You've done this before? Many times. Now that I drive a war rig, this is the best shot I'll ever have. And then? They're looking for hope. What about you? Redemption. The surprising thing about this is that Mad Max Fury Road got nominated at all, isn't it? Partially. Uh, the, I mean, it was a highly rated movie. I'm not yes. saying for the, the uh, merits of no, the movie, no, no. but because of the type of movie it is. Exactly. I mean, the, the Academy has not always embraced genre films. It's It's... I remember when Silence of the Lambs exactly. won. I was all excited. It's like, oh, a horror film has won. This is amazing. So this is an action film. It's a beautiful action film with a lot of subtle themes. And it was nice to see the Academy embrace it. Actually, you you were talking about this out-of-body experience. Okay, this was a film that needed seat belts because you constantly <laughs> were having this out-of-body, like leaping out of your seat, off the edge of your chair. Um, it was fabulous. It was a fantastic action film. So I'm so pleased to see that get nominated. Particularly Nasty. a movie which is so prone to excesses. I mean, this is a movie about excesses. And mm -hmm. I think that's what makes it special. I mean, it's stark, raving, mad. And that's <laughs> the reason why, you know, it resonates for people. And for a movie like that to be nominated in so many categories, it's fairly atypical, I would say. I'm, I'm thrilled. I couldn't be happier. Now, um, apparently we could talk about this for hours and hours. We're heading into the <laughs> final minutes that we have here. Yazdi, what, what were you hoping to see nominated that wasn't? Um, I think uh, something like Straight Out of Compton. You know, that was a movie which was very well regarded, a movie that I didn't 100% love, but it had tremendous commercial success. It was kind of a watershed moment 
in this year's cinema, and uh, it was kind of almost completely left out, except for in the, the writing category. in the writing category. And and Beth. I loved this film called Bone Tomahawk, which never played in San Diego. With Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell with that fabulous mustache that he kept for Hateful Eight. (laughs) And he was amazing in that. And I would have loved to have seen him nominated for that. And I also loved the score for the horror film It Follows. I thought it was really innovative and drove that film so well that I was sorry to see that not get nominated. Now, lots of times when the nominations are announced, people say, well, the Academy, it went with uh, big studios and big names and the nominations were too safe. Yazji, do you agree with that this year, that they were too safe? They were too safe uh, in terms of being predictable, in terms of being not very diverse. But I'm glad that while the Academy embraced big blockbusters like The Martian and, and Mad Max and so forth, they still found room for the very small movies like Room or Brooklyn, which are also very beloved to me. So I think they did hit the balance, but definitely not in terms of diversity. And uh, when it comes to this really sort of major field of uh, actresses that are uh, great, great performances this year in the movie, Carol, uh, which got a Golden Globe uh, Award, I believe, in, in a couple of categories. Um, uh, Kate Blanchett, the, uh, the lead actress, one of the lead actress, were, was not nominated for an Oscar. Am I correct about that? She was. No, she was nominated. What happens with that category is you basically had two lead, two lead actresses. actresses. That's what it is. And rather than put them up against each other mm-hmm. and possibly lose out either on the nomination or, God forbid, lose out on the award, um, the studios market the actresses in two different categories. So this is the studios that do this. Yes. It's not the people who vote for the Oscars. No. Yeah, the studio, when you get your screen, when the Academy members get their screeners, they get a little sheet with it or the the cover that the the DVD has. And it'll say, like, for your consideration in the category of best actress, Kate Blanchett, for your consideration is best supporting actress, Rooney Mara. And that's how they hope to kind of spread the the awards around and try to ensure that maybe their candidates will win. That's interesting. Now, Yasti, you're a member of the San Diego Film Critics Society. Mm-hmm. How do the Oscars line up with your group's awards? Um, we pride ourselves on being different uh, and just, just not, you know, follow the mainstream. But uh, we actually had a lot of uh, a lot of our winners are uh, you can find them in the list of nominees for the Oscars. So, for example, we picked Mad Max as our best, best movie, as well mm-hmm. as for uh, George Miller for the director. Uh, Blee Larson was picked as uh, uh, the best uh, female actor, and she's nominated here again for the Oscar. But I think uh, we also found time to pick some unusual things. We picked, uh, uh, for our best supporting actor, male, we actually picked uh, Tom Noonan, who's not even in the movie. He only provides voiceover work. A really small movie called What We Do in the Shadows, Brilliant, probably the funniest movie of the year. <laughs> we picked that in the screenplay category. And Oscar just ignores those little, little movies. And uh, just really quickly, Beth, um, your pick for uh, Best Picture? What I think will win? Yes. Sadly, it will probably be The Revenant, which I don't think is the best of what's nominated. No, not sadly for you. <laughs> not sadly for you. Not sadly I'd, for you. I'd be very happy if the Revenant won, but I, I'd say within that list, I, I have more fondness for Mad Max. Okay. All right, then. Uh, I've been speaking with KPBS film critic Beth Accomando and Yazdi Patavala. You can find his podcast at moviewallas.com and look for Beth's Cinema Junkie podcast on the Oscars. You'll find that tomorrow. The 88th Academy Awards will be televised on ABC on February 28th. I want to thank Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. And thanks for your patience while I was out on vacation. So until our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. You can subscribe to the Cinema Junkie podcast on iTunes or find it at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. Thanks again. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.